geopolitics and empire is joined by a man who needs little introduction by now colonel douglas mcgregor who's a decorated combat veteran author of five books a phd and the defense and foreign policy consultant it's an honor to have you on geopolitics and empire colonel thanks we we, we met briefly this past uh, spring in my home state of Illinois, where I, I attended an amazing VIP event of yours organized by uh, Olga Ravasi of Serbian American Voters Alliance. So shout out uh, to her. And uh, you'll be attending, I think, in September 2nd, the next Ron Paul Institute conference in Washington, D.C. So I, I plan to be there as well. So I urge everyone to catch Colonel McGregor in person <laughs> if, you, if, if you get the chance. And uh, I like to start out sort of big picture and then drill down in details. I'm often concerned and preoccupied with globalism and the American empire. I know you talk about uh, the threat of globalism. It's it's almost as if the American empire is the battering ram for globalism. Uh, today, it was reported that Alex and George Soros have maxed out their donations to Joe Biden for the next elections. I've read stories like the USAID financing uh, drag queen events in Ecuador. Uh, you know, Washington and Brussels seem to be pushing for one worldism uh, everywhere. W what are your thoughts uh, on globalism today? Huh. Thoughts on globalism? That's a loaded question. Uh, first, I think we do need to define it a little bit. <clears throat> the people that are today arguing for globalism were very similar to the people that wanted us to go to Vietnam. Walt Rostow and his brother were advocates for going into Southeast Asia with a goal of building a new nation uh, on the foundations of South Vietnam. Uh, we've been going through this process off and on much longer than people realize. And what they were always interested in doing and particularly today's group, is erasing national identities. They're convinced that the way to future utopia is to create a place where no one knows what or who they are, <laughs> except, of course, the globalists at the top who know that they're in control and ruling the world. Uh, so that means you have to destroy uh, national identities, destroy borders, effect effectively subvert populations from within by convincing the majority population in any country that there's something wrong with them, that they can only improve by abandoning control of their borders and inviting millions of people into their country who are radically different from them to dilute their identity, change their identity, and ultimately erase any semblance of identity. I think that's a very important concept that most people in Europe don't understand. I don't think we in the United States get it. But if you look at the policies that we've been pursuing, it, it makes excellent sense because the policies that we are pursuing are suicidal. They're designed to destroy us. Open your borders, vet no one, let everyone come in and disperse into your population. Then you create internal divisions and fights and wars and conflicts within conflicts, and you have chaos. Chaos then allows those with vast quantities of money like Soros, who are at the top of the pyramid, to exert absolute control, tell you how to live, what to, what to believe, and so forth. And of course, a Trojan horse in the midst of all of this is atheism, and nihilism, and socialism. And we all know how socialism works. Anybody who lived in uh, the so-called Eastern Bloc understands it. The state controls everything, which means a small minority governs and everyone else is effectively reduced to some form of slavery. 
that's nothing that anybody with a brain wants, but that's where we are. And we have these people in Washington and London and Paris and Berlin, and they're driving this war. Now, why, why go to war with the Russians? Well, because the Russians sobered up, they abandoned communism. If uh, Russia were a Soviet state, I'm sure that all of the globalists would be applauding since uh, they see that as yet another path to the utopia that they want to build. There used to be this thing we called the Soviet man. The Soviet man was this fictitious human being that would emerge over decades to replace all the various constituent peoples of the Soviet Union, and for that matter, Eastern Europe. And the joke, of course, in Moscow when the Soviet Union collapsed was, well, what happened to the Soviet man? Everybody looked around and, gosh, you know what they found? Ukrainians, Russians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, Tartars, Turks, and so forth. So it's a, it's, it's a tragic event, but right now, Russia is seen as a nationalist state with a strong cultural identity founded on Orthodox Christianity. Well, these things are all anathema to everybody in the globalist community. And to boot, uh, they're sitting on top of some of the world's richest mineral resources, an abundance of uh, agricultural development, food, foodstuffs. Uh, they stretch from one ocean to another. So if you can get into Russia, if you can subvert the government, you can destroy the government and replace it with one of your own choosing, which is effectively what we did in Ukraine. Well, then you have access to all of these resources. And I think the Russians understand this, and it's why they finally decided that this is indeed an existential fight that they have to win. Riots across Europe, unprecedented food and energy inflation, increasing military conflict around the globe, and a rising digital police state. The fourth turning is here, and so is the Expat Money Summit. The free online event, expatmoneysummit.com, is back and will help you navigate these turbulent times. Featuring dozens of renowned experts such as Dr. Ron Paul, international man Doug Casey, Jim Rogers, and Mark Faber, the summit will reveal how you can reclaim your freedom abroad, reduce your tax bill, protect your wealth, obtain multiple citizenships and residencies, become part of a like-minded global community, and more. Founder of expatmoney.com, Mikhail Thorup, will be your guide on this journey to protect yourself from economic collapse, World War III, authoritarian Western regimes, and Klaus Schwab's Great Reset. Simply go to expatmoneysummit.com and enter your email to reserve a free ticket to the event. Do it now. Thought I just mentioned, by the way, you, there was a popular tweet of yours th that you put out recently, which said, quote, there are currently three branches of government, Raytheon, <laughs> BlackRock, pharmaceutical companies uh, follow the money. And maybe before delving deeper into Ukraine and Russia, you know, to ask you about NATO, because uh, I, I view that uh, I've come to view NATO as one of the key globalist uh, institutions. I, I feel that it's not it's not it's openly not even a defensive organization. And um, it's it's like, uh, you know, itching to become the UN army or, or one world army, if you will. Now they want to enter the Pacific. I guess they'll have to change their name to NAPTO or the GTO, the global treaty uh, organization. It, it, it seems like they're positioning to take the rest of the world. Uh, so uh, what are your thoughts uh, on NATO today? Well, you know, NATO uh, was founded for one purpose. And when that purpose no longer existed, which was to defend the West against a potential Soviet attack, and the Soviet 
system collapsed along with the satellites that were part of it, people looked around and said, well, we no longer need NATO. In fact, uh, I was one of them. And uh, several of my colleagues said, well, this means we can go home. Uh, fancy that. What an interesting notion. Americans will go home. And then we were told, oh, no, no, no. This is premature. NATO is such a successful alliance. It has a new purpose. And we all asked what that was. And the purpose was supposedly to prevent the outbreak of another war in Europe. Well, we thought that's reasonable. Sounds plausible. We went along with it. And then we discovered that had nothing to do with the new NATO. The new NATO was being militarized and, and instrumentalized to work as an appendage of globalist foreign policy run out of Washington and London. And that meant war on the Serbs in the Balkans. It, it was not a question of, are we intervening to bring peace? Are we looking for solutions that will work long term? No. The original intention was to go in and say everyone is going to be homogenized inside, inside some amorphous uh, state structure, which at the time, as you know, nobody wanted. It was called Yugoslavia. It was called the Soviet Union. Another one was Czechoslovakia. Everybody was anxious to get out from under these things so that they would have some degree of independence. Smaller republics responsive to the populations, and the populations wanted to be ruled by people like themselves, not foreigners. We reversed all of that, and we set about in the Balkans to create a new status quo, which hasn't held up very well because the underlying problems were never addressed. So that, that's effectively the problem with NATO now is that, well, we've, we've been so successful in the Balkans and we're so successful in Ukraine that we want to extend this success to the Pacific. Why? Because we have another problem child called China. Thousands of years of civilization and identity in China are obviously a problem and need to somehow or another be subjugated. Uh, and we want as our allies, the, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Vietnamese, anybody we can find. It's, it's a kind of insanity that makes absolutely no sense, but it fits with the globalist model. Keep trying to herd people in this particular direction until everyone is in your camp and you rule it. Uh, I don't see it happening, but I do wish they would change the name of NATO. It's not North. It's not even Atlantic anymore. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think they want it to be the Atlantic to the Urals Alliance of nations devoted to globalism. That's going to be a hard sell with most Europeans and Americans and Canadians, but no, it's possible. Yeah, I think uh, we should put out a contest for best uh, new name for NATO. <laughs> and then uh, getting back to Ukraine, we just had a second attack on the bridge in uh, Crimea, and it seems, you know, the Kremlin has been patient, but it seems like they're finally slowly putting their foot down. Apparently, they did not renew the grain deal. Sure. Uh, I've read that they have frozen uh, assets of foreign companies like uh dannon and, and carlsberg we had the vilnius nato summit which uh apparently it appeared to make zelensky and, and kiev look weak and i i did just read uh, before we connected biden administration announcing another 1.3 billion in weapons for ukraine uh you know your thoughts on some of these developments and and others you know where are we on in the ukraine war well it seems as though uh when you're on the brink of collapse and failure is standing in your face, the right course of action is to double down on the failed strategy that you've been pursuing. That seems to be the American way of doing business. The idea that you would step back and reassess, you know, your, your position is simply foreign to people. 
in uh, what is one of my favorite stories is uh, Hitler who lands in Finland and he had a conversation with Mannerheim who was the effectively the the leading figure in Finland and the military commander and in this conversation which was recorded without the knowledge of uh, its participants at the time there were very frank discussions and one of the statements that uh, Hitler makes in his conversation is about overrunning parts of the Soviet Union and particularly a city Kharkov and talks about uh, the factories that were there and the, and the thousands of tanks that were produced and how the slave labor uh, at the factories lived like animals and so forth and he said who would have thought that anyone in their right mind would build 30 or 40,000 tanks in peacetime if we had known this we would never have invaded well, thank you. Well, why not then, now that you've recognized that you've walked into this morass, why didn't he step back and say, this needs to end? This will take us nowhere. We can't maintain this indefinitely simply because of reasons of size, geography, demographics. Well, because that involves admitting that you were wrong. And no one in Washington wants to admit that they were wrong. And what were they wrong about? Well, they were wrong about Russia. They didn't understand what they were dealing with. They thought that Russia was still the backward, confused, chaotic state that it was in the 1990s. They missed entirely all of the things that had been done over the last 20 years by Vladimir Putin and his supporters. I'm not here to say that everything that they've done is perfect and has worked brilliantly, but it very definitely recovered Russia from the ash heap of history. And at the same time, we didn't understand that the Russians had maintained this large scientific industrial base to produce and manufacture military equipment. We didn't understand that the Russian population actually supports its government. We didn't understand any of these things. And so we embarked upon another regime change crusade in what we thought was another backward country that we could treat with complete contempt the way we treated Afghanistan, uh, Iraq. Syria, Libya, you know, go down the list. We found out that we were wrong. No one wants to step forward and say, hey, we were wrong. It's time for us to cut our losses, uh, change horses, move on, uh, whatever. On the contrary, we're doing what we did in Vietnam and everywhere else. We're sort of beating the, the nail into the ground with the same hammer over and over and over again. This is the sort of Einstein-like insanity that we've all heard about. That's what we have in Washington. And I think it's going to continue until we can't afford it. And then the real, the real discussion is, well, when does this can't afford come about? Because we have all of these people who are confident that we can print money at will because we're the reserve currency and nothing can stop us. I'm one of those who thinks, like Nassim Taleb, that uh, we are staring at Armageddon financially. And we are looking not just at Russia today, but a very close relationship between Moscow, Beijing, and Delhi. Uh, these three countries and the leaders in them know each other quite well. They've known each other for many, many years. It's a closer relationship than we in the West appreciate. And it's only a matter of time until the decision is made to fire sale our treasuries. And when that happens, our, our economy is in a lot of trouble, especially if the Fed tries to walk in and buy up all the bonds. That won't flush, literally, with the larger financial system in the world. So all of this has to be viewed as, as, as part of a, a huge 
problem that we have created for ourselves. And NATO is just part of it. It's not the only part, but NATO itself is crumbling. And this demonstration of solidarity in Vilnius that you saw is a facade. Behind that, people are horrified. The Germans are horrified because what was the original goal? Destroy Russia, regime change in Russia, create a new country. The Germans have already said, we don't want anything to do with that. They're smart enough to understand, as any European does, that when you destroy these nations, you have chaos. Chaos results in wars, famine, conflict. Nobody wants it. But we're continuing to push it. And we're increasingly on our own. So when we put $1.6 billion down, first of all, a lot of that cash will never leave the United States. It'll simply be laundered through the Pentagon, laundered through the so-called military-industrial complex. It will enrich lots of people invested in it, and particularly people in the Senate, in the House. They will have lots of cash stuffed into their pockets for their trouble. Some of it will get to Ukraine, and we know from experience that a lot of it will just vanish into another black hole. You know, we know that Zelensky and his crew all have nice fat bank accounts in places like Cyprus and elsewhere. Whenever they leave, and I think they will at some point, they'll go live in luxury or so they think. But but the country itself will be destroyed, and that's not their concern because in the final analysis, Ukraine has never been meaningful to anybody in Washington or London. It's simply been a way to destroy Russia. Use Ukraine as cannon fodder. Use Ukraine's population, use its society, whatever is there to harm Russia. It's all backfiring, but there's nothing we can do about it at this point. But to expect anyone in Washington to suspend aid at this point is unrealistic. Now, will they at some point suspend aid? I suspect they'll have to. But right now, it's maintain appearances, keep them up, especially as you run up into the election next year. Because if everything changes between now and that election, and I think it probably will, then they have to explain away a huge strategic defeat, which is what Ukraine is going to represent to the United States and its allies. Yeah, what you mentioned earlier, again, I read this morning that one of the Ukrainian heads of state, uh, one of the daughters, their their daughters purchased a home in the south of France to the tune of many, many uh, millions. So just just as you were uh, saying, and maybe just a bit more on multipolarity you know i've had a number of guests over the years like jim rogers and peter schiff talk about this coming uh crisis de-dollarization uh and and the loss of the world reserve status and and i think it's coming in you know will that be the 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 straw that breaks the camel's back and then this multipolar world that's coming into being i mean uh, any further thoughts on on what that will look like they're talking about a common currency and then you know what, what does america look like in in a multipolar world Uh, I would go back to uh, something called the Anarchical Society. It was a book written by Hedley Bull uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, somewhere in that time frame. And he predicts that the the world will end up being regionalized. In other words, it's not a question of total chaos with every individual state going its own way. Rather, we'll see regions coalesce. We'll see new coalitions of people for various reasons. And right now, the one that's of greatest concern and strategic importance is, of course, the Eurasian coalition between China, Russia, and potentially uh, even India, probably Iran. Uh, It's hard to tell at this point. But of course, then you have Central Asia, and both China and Russia have an interest in managing Central Asia. 
Central Asia is not entirely, but is largely Islamic. And the fear in Central Asia was harbored in both Moscow and Beijing was that the Islamic dimension would rage out of control and create the potential for conflict between them and between the various actors. The, the point is that we are now going to live in this regionalized world where different actors coalesce, work together. I, I can't give you an exact uh, map at this point, but I think Henley Bull was right. We can operate in that world very easily. We are North America. I mean, let's face it. I always laugh when people talk about the American empire. Well, the American empire to me was always North America. There was no need for anything else. And this, of course, was the argument that was made by the people that founded the country. They all anticipated that we would march all the way to the Atlantic, or excuse me, to the Pacific, that we would have a an Atlantic to the Pacific country. It would end up with borders based on regional culture, history, language, religion. And indeed, that's what we have with the southern border. And the northern border just became a friendly border because, frankly, the people in Canada were viewed as essentially not very different from ourselves. And so we had the advantage of certainly peace in the north and a, a troublesome border in the south, but usually limited to criminality as opposed to anticipating large armies organizing to invade us. And the founders thought this is a wonderful thing for which we ought to strive because once we've got that, we have all the resources we need. We have all the rivers that will help us with transportation and commerce. We'll have plenty of Europeans pile into the United States and populate these otherwise largely empty or desolate areas, and we'll become a very strong and successful society. No one anticipated that we would suddenly become interested in projecting our military power around the world. I mean, I... If you go back and look at Alexander Hamilton and uh, George Washington, their view was that America should become the world's engine of prosperity. And their rationale was if, if it becomes the engine of prosperity, people everywhere will want to emulate us. They'll say, look, this is a successful business model, successful political model. Let's adopt something similar to it. The idea that we would go somewhere in the world and introduce our notions of how the world should be organized at gunpoint was something that no one at that at that time really anticipated. So that's where we are. And uh, so what whatever happens next, and I think what happens next is some kind of major financial crisis and economic turndown, the predisposition in this country will be to do what it has historically always done bring home the troops. The first time we did not do that was after World War II. The reason for that was communism and the Cold War that followed. But once again, when that went away, the assumption of people like me and the American military was, well, great, let's go home. It didn't happen. So now <clears throat> I think we're going to be compelled for reasons of finance and economics to essentially say, that's it, bring the troops home. And they'll come home. And then we'll begin to do what we really need to do, which is turn inward and deal with the multitude of problems that we've created for ourselves here at home. Throughout history, empires have risen and fallen. Some of the most successful empires were those that offered people a reason to come, often lower taxes and the prospect of citizenship. In ancient times, empires would say foreigners can become one of us and prosper through business and trade. Throughout history, people have gravitated to jurisdictions that have given them the best conditions to do business so if you run a business, 
you should consider Nomad Capitalist because they help entrepreneurs and investors relocate to parts of the world where they can keep more of their wealth. They literally wrote the book on it, The Best-Selling Nomad Capitalist. Find it on Amazon. If you're an entrepreneur or investor and believe you're paying too much in tax, or if you'd like to get a second passport or a third passport like I have to expand your options and not have to be reliant on one government, there are legal ways to do this. Nomad Capitalist has been assisting over a thousand clients for the last 10 years. You can check out their 2,000 plus educational YouTube videos and nearly 2,000 blogs. Just go to nomadcapitalist.com. Learn how they can help you legally reduce your tax bill, expand your options globally, and navigate the algorithm ghetto. I, I sure hope so. And, um, you know, th there's a question that I ask uh, a number of my guests. You know, we talked about globalism, uh, Putin, Russia, the conservative Russia. You know, I'm a, I'm a conservative. I'm anti-globalist. But th there are just a few contradictions w which I don't understand or incongruencies uh, where, you know, I, you've mentioned previously, you know, we've seen Russia speak against much of the insanity of the West, its globalism, this whole uh, trans transgenderism, uh, in insanity, and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, there have been some instances where it seemed Russia did play ball uh, with aspects of globalism, whether it was, you know, these, these playing along with this COVID uh, technocracy regime and, and and things like this uh do you have any thoughts on that how to make sense uh of that well i think vladimir putin of all the russian leaders is probably the one who has both a certain amount of affection for and understanding of the west remember he lived for quite a while in germany and he's been able to travel people condemn him routinely oh he's a kgb thug monster and so forth the truth is that during the Soviet years, the people that understood the most about the world beyond the borders of the Soviet Union were KGB agents because they were the ones who could leave and move freely. And they did not come back uh, ideologically hardened opponents of the West. In most cases, they came back and said, well, we've got to make changes here. We've got to adapt. And you know the story behind Gorbachev. All of that came to a head. It's not the first time in Russian history. The Russians went through this with the Decembrists after the Napoleonic Wars. The, the point is, I think Putin was always trying to find a good rapport with the West. He was trying to make Russia a strategic partner for the West in both economic as well as political terms, and for that matter, even militarily. I can tell you when I was on active duty in 2001, that the intelligence and material support the Russians provided to us in Afghanistan was invaluable. We could not have gone in and had any success dealing with terrorism in that country without the support and the assistance of the Russians. It's why so many of us were really surprised when we suddenly turned around and, and struck at the Russians, because the Russians were helpful. Look, when, when uh, Donald Trump was president, whenever we, we went forward with these pointless missile strikes in places like Syria or, or Iraq, the Russians always accommodated us, not because they were afraid of us. They knew it was pointless. They knew it was stupid. They said, well, let, let's let the, let the Americans do this, then we'll get back to normality. And that's effectively what happened when Trump was in office. But the problem is that today we've gone too far. We pushed the Russians too hard. We we demanded that they effectively humiliate themselves in front of us. In other words, surrender 
uh, any any control or interest in the countries that border them, you know, submit to this uh, NATO-style hegemony, which is financial, economic, political, and military. It's not just one. It's all of it. The Russians have said no. And I think this is going to go on for a while longer until the, the economic strength in the in the United States wanes. And let's face it, we're we're not in good shape. The underlying fundamentals are poor. If you've had Jim Rogers and others on, then you know what I'm talking about. I don't need to repeat any of that. The reason I go to Nassim Taleb is because this is the man that invented the, you know, the the black swan. And what he says, and I agree with him completely, when somebody says, well, all right, uh, Nassim Taleb, tell us when this Armageddon is, is going to happen. He looks at him, he says, well, I can't predict that. He said, it's coming and it's near. It's not far. It's in front of you. Look for it. People don't like that. They want you to give them a time and a date. It reminds me of Secretary of the Treasury Mellon uh, in 1929, in June of 29. Let's see, that's what, four months before the crash. He gave a speech because people were a little nervous about what they thought then were some strange happenings in the market. And he gave a speech, it was very famous, and he said, we live in an era of unbroken prosperity. I know because my great-grandfather lost $4 million in the crash. And at the time, he said, well, I listened to uh, Secretary Mellon. This is my maternal great-grandfather. I, I thought he was an honest man. You know, I... I, I've never met. I never met my great grandfather, but I, if if I ever do in the next life, I, I'll immediately go to him and said, "What, what on earth possessed you to believe that nonsense?" But I think we're in the same position now. We have lots of people saying, "Oh, you don't understand modern economics. Everything will be fine until it isn't," and it's it, that's where we're headed. And it is, I think, as Nassim Taleb points out, near rather than far away. And again. When that happens, no one in the United States, no one will give a damn what happens beyond the borders of the United States. Because you and I both know, truthfully, does a, does an American, the average American, care what happens in eastern Ukraine? I don't think so, if they could even find it on the map. If you, if you asked an American right now about the Yucatan Peninsula and troubles down there, most of them would say, huh? What? What are you talking about? America is exactly what a Spanish general staff officer told me in, in uh, 1998 uh, and when I was the director of uh, the Joint Operations Center at uh, SHAPE headquarters, Supreme Headquarters of Allied Powers Europe. He said, you know, Colonel McGregor, the United States is not a nation. It's not a country. It's a planet. And everybody lives on that planet. And what happens elsewhere is that anybody is really not interested to much of anybody. There's a lot of truth in that statement, but that gets us into trouble, as you know. Yeah, and and sort of to bring things uh, back home, I, that, that reminded me. I think there was a Mexican president in the, in the '70s. I think it was a Javaria, who it turns out recently was a uh, was the fourth Mexican president uh, that that was a CIA agent. But he came out and said the Mexican pace was not going to devalue, and then the next day it deval- <laughs> devalues. And so um, we, we we talked about the economic situation, but I, I heard you recently on Patrick Bet David's uh, valuetainment podcast which is uh, fantastic and that was a great interview uh you talked about there may not be uh 2024 elections and, and you know setting the economics aside there's talk of a second civil war i've had people like james wesley rawls of survival blog on and you know today it was just reported that trump uh, uh posted that he received the target letter from the doj saying they're going to arrest and indict him for 
J sixth. And so, you know, any further uh, thoughts on the scenario at home? Because it seems like the globalists also want to try and balkanize. That's what they do. You know, they they they've, they balkanize the Balkans, Yugoslavia, Iraq. Uh, you know, you you name it. And so, a, a, any other thoughts on uh, the road ahead in in the United States? Well, my point in in saying what I did was that I think there are lots of discontented people, and there are many unknowns associated with this election cycle. It's a very strange environment right now. Most Americans, and I'm I'm saying what I think is true, you know, perhaps people can show me polls that that uh, argue a different way, but I think most uh, American adults who vote have real questions about our election integrity. Now, this is not entirely new. We've had problems with election integrity for years, particularly in the largest cities. I mean, the joke in New York and Philadelphia, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, election day was always called resurrection day uh, because the dead, you know, sprang up from the cemeteries and voted. So we've always had this problem. The second part is that there has been tremendous resistance to any sort of uniform uh, law that, that addressed election integrity, designed to boost public confidence in the value of elections. This is this goes all the way back to the founders. The founders initially uh, wrote into the Constitution that the states would be responsible for conducting elections, and uh, that's for me on the state level. It, it, that's fine, but on when you go to the federal level. That's problematic. But at the time, you know, the states had all the money. They were very powerful entities. The 13 colonies, each of them were effectively countries in their own right. By the way, that persisted and brought on the Civil War because those states really were independent of the federal uh, rule in in cultural and, and human terms. People in those days rarely moved more than, say, 20 miles from where they were born. I mean, I laugh all the time when people say, well, why did so-and-so fight for the North and so-and-so fight for the South? Well, with very few exceptions, people didn't travel. And if you happened to live in Virginia or you happened to live in Kentucky or you were in Pennsylvania, well, you were probably going to fight with the bunch that they decided to join. It's that simple. Well, <clears throat> today we have a similar problem with the way elections are run. And we have to overturn that because if we can't get control of the election integrity, we cannot be certain that the people who are voting are citizens, legally legal residents of the particular area where they vote, then how can we take elections seriously at all? And on top of that, you have the problem that very few people want to expose their families and their homes to the attacks of people that will hate them for whatever it is that they say or do. So you end up with a political class that is not necessarily composed of, let us say, the people everyone would really like to run the United States. But I'm sure that's probably true in Mexico as well. Yeah, and in many uh, countries, uh, you know, I, I thought maybe we're, we're seeing a lot of censorship uh, the mainstream i think a lot of people are losing faith in the mainstream media at the same time you know they're getting rid of all dissidents we saw what happened to tucker carlson uh, is is there, can you give us uh, any tip uh when it comes to analyzing information processing uh sourcing information um you know how to think about you know this daily uh struggle to to figure out what's 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 uh, going on any any thoughts uh, there 
Well, you know, you're dead right. We don't teach people to think and analyze. Uh, they simply react. And it's it's bad news. I mean, it's easy to demonize Russia after you've had 50 years of Cold War against the Soviet Union. It's easy to persuade people that the Russians once again are evil actors as they were in the Soviet era. That That's a problem. There's no question about it. And people don't like to, to dig to find things out. There is no easy solution. For the people that want to be informed, you know as well as I do, you can dig through the internet and you can find lots of different sources of information. But for the average person that's trying to put food on the table, feed their families, preserve their homes, and get through life, it's, it's a difficult process. So that means that you have to have a government that is committed to the truth even if the truth hurts. We had that in this country for a long time. We don't anymore. And that's our problem. And we are seeing the government and its agencies weaponized for use against anyone that questions what they're doing. It's a, it's a scary thing. I don't think it's going to work. I think we'll overturn it. But we're going to go through some difficult times in the future. But, uh, you know, I grew up in a world where people that were FBI agents were viewed as among America's very best people that were absolutely trustworthy to whom you could turn under any and all circumstances. For the first time in my life, I see people telling me all the time, if any of them show up at your door, don't say a word and get your attorney and don't let them in your house and so forth. It's very, very interesting change culturally for Americans, not so much in Mexico and Latin America, where most people most of the time have good reason to fear the police. But here, that's a big change. I certainly never viewed the police in Philadelphia when I was growing up as a danger. Certainly never saw them as the enemy. Absolutely not. So th these are things that we have to fix. They won't be fixed easily. It's like everything else. When discipline breaks down in a military organization, it's very difficult to restore it. Uh, when a retreat begins, things fall apart. So we're, we're essentially looking at those kinds of circumstances in civil society. Yeah, it's going to, you know, some call it the fourth turning. It's going to be interesting uh, nonetheless. And, uh, you know, if you have any other thought on how to fight globalist uh, tyranny, preserve the peace and our sanity or any final uh, thought for us. Oh, gosh, uh, I think keep an open mind. Read everything that you can find to inform yourself. Don't depend on the mainstream media anywhere to keep you informed. And uh, that's your best bet. The other thing is to try and get together with like-minded people who are interested in the truth and exchange views. For the moment, that's the best we can do. But eventually, certainly in the United States, people who oppose this globalism and oppose what's being done with our government are going to have to organize themselves or they'll be crushed, steamrollered by this government that they don't understand. Yeah, and as you said, uh, uh, regarding getting together again, uh, I'm going to give a shout out September 2nd, that's a Saturday uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, is the next Ron Paul Institute conference where Colonel McGregor will be speaking. So I'd recommend people go. I believe I will be there uh, as well. Uh, I'll include your links in the description, your Twitter, your website. It's douglasmcgregor.com. Is there any other project uh, or, or, or place to go you want us? Uh, Not right now. That's fine. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire and hopefully see you in D.C. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.